Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The title of my message today is Shema or Die. Everybody say Shema or Die. You ready? Oh, yeah. Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Here, and that word here is the word Shema. Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, again, Mount Sinai. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire of the mountain. Later on in chapter 5, so be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Chapter 6, verse 1, these are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, or Shema, Israel, and be careful to obey that it may go well with you. And that you may increase greatly in the land, flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. And here it is again. Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Make it your iPhone wallpaper. (laughs) This passage that we read is one of the most central passages in the entire scriptures. For those of you who have ever done any marketing or branding in businesses and entrepreneurship, you will know that it is often best to try to figure out how to communicate to people who are outside of your organization without all of the large, humongous jargon that sometimes is internal language to your company or your business, but a nice, succinct slogan or phrase that sums up everything about who you are and, most importantly, everything that you want other people to know. So if I were to throw out this particular phrase, the ultimate driving machine, you don't need to know everything about the whole company, but you do know the company, which is? Exactly. It's a Geometro. It's a three-cylinder, two-door. I paid $3,200 for this car in college. It was $3,100 more than it was worth. And I literally had to sometimes put my foot outside the car to get the thing moving (laughs) because three cylinders was just not enough. No, of course, this is BMW, the ultimate driving machine. We bring good things to life. GE. We care enough to send the very best. Hallmark. I can see that the uh, slogans from 12 years ago are falling short. (laughs) Just do it. Okay, there we go. Um, One of the most uh, well-known slogans, the ones that had the highest brand recognition when they did these surveys, was be all that you can be. The Army, very nice. And then one that uh, every single one of you who live here should know, 
uh, find yourself here. Find yourself here is the slogan of, does anybody know? Of the California state, state the state of California. Oh, so, sorry, wrong. I don't think that's our flag. That's our flag there, so apologize about that. Find yourself here, the slogan of California. Now, one of the things that I think is really important, especially for those of us who are really trying to follow Jesus, it's a sincere attempt to be about something in this world, to have our faith uh, inform our identity and the way in which we act and we behave and how we make decisions and how we live, and summing it all up in a slogan, again, to not mess around with all the jargon that sometimes happens on the inside, but to ask the question, who are we to the world? How are we to represent ourselves? And this is really important because reputation is a core value of Spark. I'd like to give you some handholds, some really simple handholds, and we're going to jump into what is perhaps the most important handhold of the entire story of our faith, all the way from Genesis, all the way to Revelation. It's what Jesus says, and it will be no surprise to many of you. Genesis is an amazing story full of narrative history of ups and downs, a lot of characters, everything from adultery to backstabbing to murder, you know, and that's just chapter one and two and three, right? There's all sorts of crazy drama in this particular story. But at the very beginning of the story, at the very end of the story, it bookends with this one word. Does anybody want to guess what this one word is? Good. So if you were to summarize Genesis and what it is attempting to communicate all the ups and downs of all the drama of, of the variety of things that are going on. Ultimately, this book is about being good. And good in the ancient world is not about good being the opposite of bad or evil or uh, indiscriminate. Good meaning this is the way it's supposed to be. That's what an ordered world is supposed to do. Joseph says at the very end in chapter 50, you meant this for evil, but God intended it for good. So that word good in Genesis. In Leviticus, excuse me, in Exodus, the ultimate kind of summary idea is freedom. We are liberated. Oppression, bondage is not God's good ideal. Freedom and liberation is. And you find freedom and liberation actually through the obedience of the commandments, which is a little bit of the thing that we're going to talk about today. Leviticus has all these weird laws with sacrifices and blood. And for those of you who remember a couple, uh, several months ago, we'd said so many sacrifices all over the place. But ultimately, it's because there is this sense that there's a specialness, there's a holiness to who we are, to who we are supposed to be, set apart, different from the standard way, the most base human way in which people behave. We are set apart. There's something else about this world that is distinct and different. Numbers is all about everything counts. Everything that you do matters in this entire journey. And Deuteronomy is going to be the theme that we're going to summarize today. So if, if you're Ask, if somebody asks you, so what is this story all about? If somebody comes to you with skepticism and says, really, what is this all about? What is Genesis all about? Well, you can simply say to them, your 15-second elevator pitch is that, well, this story is, this world is a good world and was designed to be a good world. What's Exodus all about? Well, bondage is not God's good design. Freedom and liberation an autonomy, a communal and individual autonomy. That is God's design. Holiness, everything counts. And then in Deuteronomy, this is going to be what we just read, the summary passage of Deuteronomy and ultimately the summary passage, the summary idea, the summary slogan, the thing that sums up everything about who we are from the very beginning 
it's going to sum up not just Deuteronomy, but the entire story. Now, to understand the background of how it has come to be number one, how the Shema has come to be number one, you have to understand how ancient people understood how they looked at all of the commandments through the text. If I were to ask you, how many commandments are there in the Bible? Popularly, some people will say 10 commandments because that's the popular idea and you want to put them on stone and you know, put them on public property and libraries, everything, and fight for those 10 commandments. But what the ancients understood is not 10, there's actually 613. And there's some beautiful commentary around why 613. 365 to be positive and 270 something, I don't do math very well, uh, to be negative. Um, And there's all sorts of different ways of positing them. What are those 613 commandments, you say? Well, they are things such as be fruitful and multiply, don't murder, don't lie, don't take revenge, don't bear a grudge. But there are some positive commandments as well. Assist the neighbor in need, stand for the elders, do not afflict a widow or an orphan, honor father and mother, observe the Sabbath. There are 613 traditionally counted as the commandments in the scriptures. Now, if you've been following along in our Deuteronomy series, you should hopefully know by now, or at least have it somewhere in your bones, when you see commandments, we are not talking about legal legislation and law. The entire journey that we've been on is to get our minds out of the idea that this is just a list of things that you are to do and not to do, legislation that you're supposed to do. We have been on a journey of trying to shift from that mentality to see the commandments that come actually come after a whole other setup, which is to say, I'm not just giving you commandments, I'm trying to give you wisdom, a sense of how to live in this world and to give you the power and the authority to make the right decisions in this world. So you don't just blindly follow the commandments that are in Deuteronomy and Numbers and Exodus, etc., and Leviticus, etc. You don't do that because that's not what this text was designed to do. Those are listed there as examples of how to think clearly and how to be wise in this world. And let me give you some examples of why it's important to understand those two concepts, that there are 613 commandments, and those commandments are not just legislation. Do this, don't do this. It's wisdom. 613 commandments, wisdom. Sometimes these commandments don't always work. Here's a commandment. If you see your neighbor's donkey... If you uh, has fallen on the road, you are to help your neighbor, help your neighbor uh, get it back on its feet. Deuteronomy chapter twenty-two, verse four. Is this a good commandment? It's a loving your neighbor commandment. This is something that is shown to exemplify some semblance of wisdom. But here's a problem: What happens if your neighbor's donkey falls down on the road, and it happens to be the Sabbath? And there's also this other commandment, do no work on the Sabbath. And you know, for those of you who have ever lifted up a donkey before, you know this is a lot of work. What do you do? This is one very simple example of how the 613 commandments that you are supposed to follow, that you're supposed to obey, that you're supposed to heed, as we mentioned, don't work all the time in every circumstance. In circumstances, in certain situations, you are commissioned now to think and to leverage your wisdom, not to just blindly obey, but to consider carefully. And one of the ways in which you filter these commandments and these circumstances through is to say, which one is actually more important? You're telling me there's something that's more important than the other? Yes, 
there is a concept that emerges out of these circumstances called greater and lesser commandments. There are some commandments that are greater and some commandments that are lesser. Question, in this particular circumstance, which is the greater commandment? What would you say? Help your neighbor's donkey? Not every community would say that. Some communities would say, no, the Sabbath is actually more important and therefore you wouldn't help your neighbor's donkey. But this is the tension that we're all in. You, by answering help your neighbor's donkey, have already started to exemplify the core essence of why our faith is distinct and different. Here's another one. There's no walking beyond permitted limits on the Sabbath. In other words, if you walked a certain limit, that would be deemed by some rabbinical authorities as work because you went too far. But then there's this command from Jesus, Matthew 5, 41, if someone forces you to go one mile, go two with them. And the question there is, which one do you obey? Greater and lesser. Which is more important? Which is less important? In a variety of circumstances, whether that's the classic ethical moral conundrum that you in 1940s Germany are hiding Jews in your house and Nazis come, the Nazi SS comes and knocks on your door and says, are you hiding any Jews here? Uh, I've given this test to many high schoolers and it's amazing. Do you A, love your neighbor and lie to the Nazis or do you B, not lie, you make sure that you tell the truth because that's a higher value. And it's an amazing exercise to watch high schoolers, and many adults, too, still wrestle with that particular question. What you cannot get away from is that there are circumstances where greater and lesser commandments need to be applied. You have to make a decision to keep one to break the other. Complete side note, by the way, what this person is doing is setting up an eruv, E-R-U-V, eruv. It comes from the word erev which means that if you are in a Jewish community, you do not walk past that Aruv. Did you know that Palo Alto has an Aruv? If, um, here's the outline of it. You can actually see. It was set up several years ago. So for those of you who live in any of those particular areas, you can actually find a pole with a wire on it, and that is the Aruv. That is the Sabbath day's walk. So even the commandments that we have here today have their place in our community. So the question is, In our journey, as followers of Jesus, what is the most highest, greatest commandment of which you would actually break all the others or not honor all the others if it came into conflict with this one and ultimate command? That does not mean that the other commandments are unimportant. It does not mean that those other commandments should not be obeyed or honored. Sabbath should still be honored and obeyed. Maybe just not when your donkey, your neighbor's donkey has fallen down or when there's work to do that would love your neighbor. But if outside of those circumstances, they're still to be obeyed. But ultimately, what is it that everything then hangs? Well, according to Jesus in Mark chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 22, it's this one right here. And throughout the ages, the most important commandment has been this. Shema Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. If you were to then put the slogan on our faith, what is it that ultimately identifies who we are? This is it. 
and all other 612 commandments. And then add whatever other commandments you might add from the New Testament, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, etc., all the Paul's writings. All of those come under this one commandment. And it's so powerful and so prominent, in fact, that every other commandment is viewed, understood, and interpreted and practiced in light of this. And then for those of you who know the story, Jesus attaches to this, love your neighbor as yourself. We've done this teaching before, just a reminder, loving God and loving your neighbor, what he does is he makes them one commandment. And everything else in our faith, all the other commandments, all of everything else is understood and interpreted through that lens. That is ultimately what the Shema is and the, the place that it has. This is a medallion that actually has the Hebrew. It says, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Emer. Now, what does Shema mean? There's the beautiful commentary from some ancient uh, rabbis that would talk about Shema is, means to listen or to hear. But very much like parents who tell their children, please go do the dishes. One hour later, they're not doing the dishes. One hour later, you say, did you hear me? You're not asking if they actually physically heard you. You're asking, did you actually follow through and obey? And so the rabbinic sense or some, some Jewish ideas come up with this imagery I love so much that you're not just hearing. You're not just like, okay, I, I can, the, the sound percussiveness is, you know, rattling my inner ear and, you know, making my neurons go fine. I got it. I understand it. There's a sense that I'm actually now listening with cupped ears. And it's amazing. Like, even, if, even as I'm doing this just now, in fact, if you do this and then listen to my voice, what happens to my voice? What happens to the sound when you listen with cupped ears? It becomes much more prominent. It is focused. It is centered. And when you do that, there's a sense that I am really attending to what it is that I'm hearing, so much so that I not just hear, I actually follow through and obey. The Shema says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all of your mind, which is the logo that we see here. I wanted to explain this. I got a little bit ahead of myself. I apologize. I wanted to explain the logo that we have in the Deuteronomy series. The letter that is below that's holding up the heart, the soul, and the strength is actually this letter Shin. And the letter Shin is the letter that starts this word Shema. And one of the, my favorite things is... Um, to ask you, if you were to make this letter with your hands, I might have given it away already, but if you were to make this letter with your hands, how would you make this letter with your hand, with one hand? How would you, how would you do that? So Robert's got it back there. This is, yeah, Audrey's got it. Very nice. Very nice. Look at this. So the ancient uh, rabbis, and even to this particular day, you would make this particular symbol with your hand as the image of what the Shema is. It represents Shema, Shalom, Shaddai. It's the first letter that begins all of these particular words. And this would often be used as the priestly blessing over the people, the um, the blessing over all of the children. And you would bless the children with that blessing so that you would also live long and prosper. Yeah, exactly. Leonard Nimoy was actually Jewish, and this is exactly where this came from. So the Shema is also used sometimes to um, pray. You would put the Shema over your, your head, uh, over your face as a sign of reverence. And as I mentioned before, that this is used still in the priestly blessing today. So heart, 
soul. And then the last word here is not necessarily ultimately might, it's actually the word oomph. Um, my professor friend in Jerusalem taught uh, me that this word actually means like muchness. It's like, uh, it's like the very, with your very. So it's not just strength and power. It's like love the Lord your God with all your heart, which is your mind, the, the fullness of your thinking and emotions, your soul, which is your very life. And then to love your Lord your God with all of it. It's like this oomph into the whole of the command. So what ultimately is the thing that summarizes this entire command? It is the word Shema. Would you sit, just say that word? Shema. Shema is the thing that ultimately summarizes what this is all about. And we are to love God with everything. Here's the slide that I was referencing earlier. So, because we're listening now with cupped ears, and we are listening intently to what God has to say, we recognize that hearing is not the only thing that this word is inviting us to. It is also inviting us to obey. And here's where it's going to get tricky for many of us. Because for many of us, to think that the number one commandment in our faith, in our entire text, is to obey, is going to rub up against many of us a little bit the wrong way. Because some of us really don't like to follow what it is that we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. And in fact, you would much rather just be left alone rather than actually be told what to do. So some of us are not going to like the idea of obedience. It's going to feel like submission. It's going to feel like blindness. Just uh, turn your mind off and just do what I tell you. Um, The other reason why the word obey is going to be difficult for some of us is because obedience can sometimes lead us to a different kind of faith expression that is just merely about following the rules, this thing that we had talked about before. I remember many years ago, I was just barely become familiar with the church. I was getting on a bus, uh, a little airporter, and we were going to go see a movie. And one of the youth workers there got on the bus and was talking about this movie and apparently was very down on the movie. And one of the reasons why she was down on this movie is because she had read a review and had counted the number of curse words in the movie, even though it was rated PG-13. And she had referenced the number of curse words in that particular movie and as a result was declaring that particular movie to not be holy or Christian enough for us to watch. And so I was a little upset that we were going to watch this. Um, so I remember growing up, and some of us are probably familiar, a lot of this kind of faith still exists and pervades, that your obedience to whatever legislation or laws is the very thing that identifies the characteristic of your faith. And so when you hear the word obey, this is not going to rub you the right way. It's going to feel like um, also that the math doesn't all add up too. Like if I obey and I obey and I obey, then what? Good things are going to happen. This is called a retribution principle. If I do all these things, then all the good things are going to follow. If I don't do all the bad things, then I will be free from all of the consequences. That's just kind of a way that we think about that. And for many of us in this room, you already know that that is not the case. Just read the book of Job for crying out loud. We have it in our text that that kind of prosperity, if I do this, then positive things will happen. We already know that that doesn't work. I also have considered that for many of us, um, I will speak for myself, obedience was just then merely the avenue by which we get to the end. What is the end? Getting to heaven when you die. The ultimate focus of my faith 
when I first became a Christian was not necessarily about what happened here. It was only what happened then and there. And so obedience was merely just making sure that I had enough fire insurance to avoid the bad place after I died. On this side of the door, well, just don't mess up. And my entire life was governed by this sense of how far did I sin? Did I not sin? Do I have to repent? Do I have to ask for forgiveness? Am I forgiven? And this constant game of guessing of whether or not I was obeying or not obeying until I finally got to the other side. And ultimately what this means is that my particular sense of obedience had nothing to do with the dynamic relationship with the divine or being loved. This was merely a contract. And I stood in the line and I paid my dues so I could get my freaking license so I could drive. Or I got my ticket so that I could go to heaven. So I wanted, the reason why I went through all that is because I just simply want to acknowledge that when we use the word obey, I know that there are other connotations that come in and that can cloud our thinking about what obedience might mean to us. But as you know, and if, you, if you've ever been around Spark, if you've ever just lived, that you know that there's more than one way to read a particular <laughs> phrase. There's multiple meanings. There's multiple phrases. There's multiple interpretations that you could get from, some of you are still wondering what that is, kids with gas eat free. Interpretation means that there's multiple meanings. And what I'd like to do is offer you a possible alternative to the blind obedience, this is what it means to obey. Because at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, which we will get to uh, in 2035, at the very end, there's this beautiful summation of what this book is ultimately about. Remember, Genesis is about goodness. Exodus is about freedom. Leviticus is about holiness. Numbers is about everything that counts. Deuteronomy is about loving God, but it's more than that. It's about this life. Because at the beginning, there's this sense of life. At this end of chapter 30, 31, and 32, there's a sense of life that pulls it all together. Listen to what this says. It's really, really beautiful. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. What is this obedience? See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience, there's that word again, to keep his commandments and decrees and laws, then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Obedience in this particular text, with everything that we've done before, is not tied to your blind, silly, stupid, just do what I tell you. Obedience in this text is, is intimately tied to life. You obey these commandments, you obey this kind of way of living, and you will live. This is about life. This is not just about blind obedience. There's that picture that I wanted to show you a couple weeks ago. Very similar to the brilliant analogy that Audrey gave us a couple weeks ago about a mother giving her daughter, please do these things if you are walking home at night. Don't put your earphones in. Don't ever leave a drink by itself. 
You do those things. You obey those commandments because there's a covenantal relationship there that I love you, and when you do them, you get life. So when you read obedience in the text, please don't just see, well, this is just God said it, I believe it, and obey it, and that settles it. There is a life that is attached to the commandments in this text, and that is what it means to shema, to listen, to hear, and to obey. Let me give you just a few examples. You are designed, we were all designed and created to have fidelity and covenant. That means intimacy and relationship. We were designed to trust one another, that we have a a deep, passionate, loving relationship, that there was honesty, that what you said was true and I could trust it, I could believe it. We were designed to have security and integrity, contentment, gratitude, rest, restoration. We were designed to have compassion and a value for life. Question, what happens when you commit adultery? It is not just that you violated a commandment. In this way of thinking and understanding, something has actually died. To not commit adultery is not just to, well, God said it. It is to see that the commandment exists so that fidelity and covenant and love and intimacy can live. And to break a commandment is not just that you've upset the holiness of God in the sky and he's going to strike you down. It's to recognize that you have killed something that was supposed to be alive. What happens when you bear false witness? Don't bear false witness against thy neighbor, right? You're not supposed to give a false testimony or to massage something that would ruin somebody else's life. Why? Because trust and honesty and integrity are supposed to live in this world. And so bearing false witness against thy neighbor means that you are killing and putting to death trust and integrity and honesty. What happens when you steal? Well, security, integrity dies. What happens when you covet? Oh, man, what happens when you covet? (laughs) Contentment, thankfulness, gratitude, the beauty of having the fullness of that kind of life dies. We're not just supposed to covet because, what, like, just let people have their things. No. There is supposed to be something that's supposed to be alive within you. And coveting means you kill it. When you break the Sabbath, which is the famous one that Christians love to say, well, yeah, we don't have to keep the Sabbath anymore. Woohoo! We're free from the law. When you don't keep the Sabbath, what happens? The very idea of you as an integral whole person that is separate and distinct from the work and activity that you produce, either for yourself or for somebody else, that dies. You forget that you're not just a cog and machine that's supposed to produce more and more for your company or for your shareholders or whatever. You lose that. If you violate the Sabbath, something dies. And of course, if you murder, the very sense of value for life and compassion, that dies. Throughout our text... What I hope we all take away is that death is referenced over and over and over and over again throughout our scriptures and throughout our faith to be the ultimate image and picture and metaphor of the opposite of what kind of life we are supposed to have. Remember in the garden, if you eat of this tree, death you will die. And then everybody debates all the time. But they didn't die. They continued to live. And they had kids. They were still alive. 
we miss completely that death is supposed to be that image, that picture and metaphor of the intimacy that they were supposed to have with God died. Who they were in that moment in Eden died. Death becomes that image and picture. And so we keep these commandments not because we just want to please God. We keep these commandments because we know that obedience to those commandments is intimately connected to life. At the very end of this Deuteronomy 30 passage, it's a beautiful summary. This day I call heavens and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, please highlight this. Put this on your bumper sticker. Make it your wallpaper. I don't care. This is one of the most beautiful things. Now, choose life. I mean, I read this many years ago, and I remember just kind of being struck with this. I was taught that this, the whole idea of faith is, is behave. Just behave. Don't have sex, love Jesus. Don't have sex, love Jesus. Right? That, was the, that was the entire summary of my high school career. I'm totally going to have to edit that out. And what, I, what I've come to realize is that the beauty of these passages, the reason why they have such profound effect on our humanity is because we've missed something much deeper that the ancients understood. These texts are full of life. And not only full of life, it's full of a God that is begging every single one of us to choose it. To say that it's in your hands. You have the opportunity, the ability, the prerogative, and you have God's hope and yearning and aching that you would choose life so that you and your children may live. And then here's that love the Lord your God, right? It's all connected, obedience and life, so that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice. There's that Shema. Hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land. He swore to give your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Many years in the land is, again, that metaphor for having that kind of life. In other words, if you were to sum it all up, the Shema would say this, the opposite of death is actually obedience. The opposite of death isn't life. The opposite of death is obedience. Listen very, very carefully to how to live appropriately. And when you do these commandments, when you do these uh, stipulations and these laws and this guidance and this brilliant wisdom, you will live. In other words, Shema or die. (laughs) These are our only two options. For those of you who are familiar with evangelicalism or Christianity as a whole, you will be familiar with passages like Romans 6.23. And it hopefully makes better sense to you now. The wages of sin is death. Yeah, he's referencing this same idea. Now, we think the wages of sin is death. Oh, great, I sinned, and therefore, you know, I'm not going to make it into heaven. No, if you sin, then the thing that was supposed to be alive in your life is no longer there. Deuteronomy 32, and again, this is just... The entire book is this brilliant and beautiful. Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. And by them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Please read Deuteronomy with the image and the view and the perspective that the entire text is this God that is yearning, begging, crying out for you to choose life. And then, of course, Jesus pulls into this, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, that, and I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And this, of course, is the entire agenda of what Jesus is attempting to do. So that, my friends, is Shema. Say Shema. shema. Or die. <laughs> I'm going to invite Junior to come on up. And I pray that 
we begin to see obedience in a whole new light. It's time for us to take communion, this beautiful sacrament. It is an obedience. It is to say, oh, Jesus commanded us. He said, every time you gather, do this in remembrance of me, a commandment. And it is our prayer that as you take the elements, the bread and the juice, as you take the bread and you dip it into the juice and you eat it, that you are reminded, once again, that the obedience to this particular commandment is a bringing back to you a life. It is to take literally within your body the full scope of this love, the full scope of this agenda, the full scope of who Jesus is, and that he is that close when you remember. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So my friends, wherever you are, however you are, whoever you are, you are welcome to the table to take and eat the body and the blood of Christ, which is shed for you as we sing. To all of you, my friends here, it is my deepest prayer that in the journey of your faith and your life, that you will experience the fullness of life, the aliveness that comes through this listening and hearing and loving of the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our oomph. May you experience that today and more and more for the rest of your life.